Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in Fermina Kim. Ever since she was a toddler, Rabia Chaudhry struggled with weight gain. She was less than a year old when her family moved to the United States from Pakistan and adopted a love for American junk food. Throughout her childhood, family members teased her, questioned whether she'd ever marry, and gave her the nickname Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. Now the title of her new memoir, about how food and family have shaped her, both metaphorically and literally. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim. Aromatic meat dishes, dal, kebabs. That was dinner in Pakistan before Rabia Chaudhry's family moved to the United States, where they discovered fast food and giant supermarkets and aisles of processed foods and brightly colored packages, all offering a new lifestyle that packed on the pounds. Chaudhry details her painful weight gain in a new memoir, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. Chaudhry is also a lawyer, advocate, and host of several podcasts, including Undisclosed, which focuses on wrongful convictions in the United States. And she joins me now. Welcome, Rabia. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. So before we dive into your new memoir, probably where many interviews are starting right now, let's just talk briefly um, about your relationship with Adnan Saeed, which has been for many years. Uh, He has been in prison for the last 20 years, serving a life sentence on charges that he murdered his high school girlfriend. That story was chronicled in the very famous podcast Serial in 2014. And then in your book, Adnan's story, The Search for Truth and Justice After Serial. Last month, prosecutors dropped the charges and Adnan is now a free man. When you heard that news, what did you think? I mean, I, you know, it's kind of like when you're, it, it's, it is still kind of still sinking in, um, to be honest, because when you're fighting for something for so long and every day you wake up and think, what's our next move? What do we do? What do I have to focus on? How many more years will this appeal process take? And suddenly it's all over. <laughs> it, it's a lot to process. And um, I have seen Adon a few times since then. And I think every time I see him in person and he's not behind bars, it's a little bit of a shock to the system. So I mean, I, my very first instinct was, I told you so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. you're like, I've been um, writing about this for a while, folks. Yeah, it's very validating. Look, the, 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 the state's attorney didn't just drop the charges, you know, for no reason. They spent a long time in reinvestigating this case and, and realized um, that they had the wrong person. And it also feels really good to know that they've reopened the murder investigation um, to, to really find the person who killed Heyman Lee. And I think that's the final chapter, the most maybe the most important chapter of the story. 
And how is Adnan doing? I'm curious if he's kind of settling into relief or is he angry? I mean, I, I would be so angry that I lost those years. Or did he give up that fight internally a long time ago? You know, I look, I've done 24 innocence cases um, since Adnan's and many of the people who I've worked with now, many of these defendants, they've been incarcerated for 20, 30 years. You cannot live angry for that many years. They have to come to terms with um, their life, their circumstances and create a life, um, a new life in prison. So, no, I, I've never heard anger from him. Um, all I hear now is hope and he's making plans. He wants to go to law school. He wants to finish his college degree. He's going to start working soon. I'm just excited. He's getting his own place soon. I mean, wow. he finally gets to live the life that he never got. And it sounds then like he's kind of easily adjusting from his, you know, inside prison world to to the real world. Is that is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, look, he's confounded by certain kinds of technology. <laughs> uh, he's told me numerous times he'll turn on the television and, you know, in prison, of course, they had TV, but you have some limited channels and he or he just gets so overwhelmed with how many streaming services can I choose from that he just turns it back off. But, you know, and staying out of the public spotlight and staying away from media is probably what he needs. And that is helping him just get into the world. And um, maybe when he's ready, he'll be he'll we'll see him emerge publicly. What would you want, after all these years of covering this case, what do you want the public to understand about his case? What I want the public to understand is it is not a highly unusual case. There are tens of thousands of cases like this that are even much more egregious, I would say, um, circumstances uh, in which clearly innocent people um, have been either framed or just, you know, um, however convicted. And there have been people doing this work for decades um, in innocence projects and individually, and there are many more Adnans out there. Um, that's what I want people to know. This happens all the time. Prosecutors are never held to account. Um, unethical, dirty cops are never held to account. And it just goes on and on. What's our best solution then to this problem, do you think? If I had to pick one, it's um, it's making sure you've elected the right prosecutor. Um, you're going to find there. Are pro I have cases in which the prosecutor fights us when we want to try to get DNA evidence tested. Why are you fighting to know the truth from the truth? And then you have oh, prosecutors wow. like the ones in this case who, if, if it was a different prosecutor, we might not have this result. But this is a state's attorney, uh, Marilyn Mosby, who um, Adnan was a, is the 13th person she's exonerated. This is part of her legacy and work and what she believes in. That person is so powerful, and we often completely ignore elections for district attorneys and state attorneys. They're the most powerful person in the system. Gotcha. And now let's move on uh, to, to the book at hand, your, your new memoir. You, de you dedicated it to, quote, all those who have spent their lives being judged and judging themselves for their weight, end quote. You want to say more about that? Um, yeah, I mean... <clears throat> this is it's it, this is not something I've ever publicly spoken about. You know, my public facing work is really about all kinds of advocacy issues. But to be honest, this is also an advocacy issue. And what I realized, like what in my private conversations with all of my friends, I mean, I, I there's almost nobody that I don't have con especially women that I don't have conversations with body image struggles about. Um, and then I see like what's I have daughters and what they're going through as well as they're like inundated with media images um, about what you should look like. I I feel like this is, you know, I I wrote this book for somebody like me, for a woman who for decades has struggled with this issue, has, it's taken 45 years to forgive herself um, mm. for uh, always feeling like a failure and, um, and realizing that, you know, it's, it's, this is not a lack of discipline issue. There are so many factors that go into these issues, but um, 
society might, and, and, and I'm sorry, the health profession, everybody wants to make you feel like it's your fault. So I'm hoping that when people read this book and um, they hear their story in it, um, that it brings them some semblance of peace that you can kind of start to forgive yourself. Yeah, maybe a lift, a lift of the layer of shame, potentially. Tell, tell us about, we're going to kind of central to this story is obviously your family and your relationship to, to Pakistan. Let's start with the migration. So your family's move here. What motivated that move from Pakistan to the U.S.? Well, you know, the 70s were a time when, um, in, in the history of immigration, like there were uh, visas being given fairly readily to folks who are professionals overseas. And my father was a professional. He's a veterinary doctor. What people don't know is the U.S. Department of Agriculture was heavily recruiting uh, foreign veterinarians um, to help supervise like this whole system of um, animal, um, you know, husbandry, basically, and, and farming and slaughterhouses and things like that. So really it was they wanted a better life you know they they to to my parents america and to mo- many immigrants coming here america is the land of opportunity they see the abundance and the opportunity in movies they know that um they had kind of hit my dad had kind of hit a career like uh, ceiling in a way in his um back in pakistan he knew there was only so much further he could um be promoted but here it seemed like anything was possible. And um, so when they came here, I was six months old. I was born in Pakistan, but um, they found that land of abundance and opportunity. But uh, it it also took things from them that they never obviously realized it would. Do you think so? I wasn't I wasn't clear as I was reading your book. I, you, they arrived and it didn't actually seem in many ways that they were living the same kind of a, different, you're right, different aspects of abundance compared from Pakistan to the United States. But, but in many ways, it was a bit of a harder life, especially for your mom. Right, right. That's what I mean, <clears throat> that it did take from them in some ways, in many ways. In fact, I mean, like in Pakistan, it's very common for the middle class to have, um, there's there's a servant, there's a service class, a servant class, in fact. And in in um, Pakistan, the middle class has servants. They have people who will come to the house, women who come to the house to do all the laundry. People, they'll take it away. People, women who come to the house just to wash her dishes once a day, um, you know, uh, drivers and gardeners. And I mean, this is most middle class homes have one to three servants. I mean, it's just it's you don't have to be super rich like in this country to afford that. <clears throat> and uh, here, my mom suddenly was like, "I got to clean toilets. I've never cleaned a toilet in my life." Like, um, so yeah. But uh, on the flip side, um, obviously, their career opportunities are so much greater. They they can make so much money. The dollar to rupee, obviously, you know, right. <laughs> outweighs that. Um, and the educational opportunities for the kids are very important to them, which they couldn't have had back home. Right. So different, different. Yeah, very different lifestyle. Once in the U.S., your mom was kind of ill-advised to give you bottles of half and half, and then she used frozen sticks of butter to, you know, soothe your your gums as you were teething. So, kind of packing on the the calories very early. Did she have any idea that she was stuffing you with so many calories? No. The thing is, it's really interesting to me. But I, it wasn't until I wrote this book that I realized the disconnect that my parents had between their um, observance of my weight gain, very quick weight gain, and their concern over it, but with, but the disconnect between that and what they were feeding me, because back in Pakistan and and in many indigenous cultures, um, the idea that like whole any kind of whole food is going to be bad for you, you know, it's not really a thing. So mm-hmm. children are often fed like you know quite heavy things, and but they're generally it's not processed food. 
Um, but, you know, children are given butter and cream and eggs and like, you know, good, wholesome, whole foods. But here, yeah, there was obviously the little miscommunication with the bottles of half and half. It wasn't supposed to work like that. Um, but my mom didn't have any way to advise her otherwise. Um, and the thing is, when they were growing up in Pakistan, they never, they were not deprived of food. They ate what they wanted as they wanted, and they did not experience issues with weight. So I think for them, they just didn't quite understand the connection in this country between a lot of the processed foods we were getting, which they thought everything in America is good for you. Um, and the fact that all of us were putting on the pounds. And it's really that combination of all the fatty butter, but then as you're also eating a ton of carbs and processed foods and sugars and, and empty calories that really packs on the Listen. pounds. I'll say this. I mean, some might argue that I was on a keto diet for a little bit, right? <laughs> right. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, that that stuff put on, um, chubbed me up very quickly, but it wasn't sustained. It wasn't like my mom was giving me bottles of half and half for years. It was maybe a couple of months, but it certainly worked. But I really think what um, kind of doomed me was a lot of the really processed foods that we started eating very early on. What was it like for your parents to go to the grocery store? I mean, they go from Pakistan, where at the time there weren't even refrigerators, you're going to fresh markets all the time, and then they show up at, you know, Costco. What, what was that like? I mean, I think, and I've experienced, I've seen this with other um, immigrants as well. I, you know, there is just a sense of awe. Like, how do you, uh, the idea that you can get any fruit, vegetable, food, out of season, out of place from any part of the world, at your fingertips um, is incredible. Uh, the fact that you have uh, an entire aisle of cereals to choose from or potato chips. I mean, it, it's, it's, but, it, but it's mind also, boggling. it's mind boggling. Um, you can roll up to a, a, a window, never get out of your car and somebody hands you this hot food for like three ninety nine, right? Like it's incredible. Totally but, different. Rabia, we're going to go to a break, but we're going to come right back and talk about these intrinsic differences. And then also obviously your relationship to your family and your food, food, just go, this, Sorry about that. Uh, Ravi Chaudhary, we'll be right back with you in just a few. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum, and we're talking about food and family and the relationship between them with Rabia Chaudhry, whose new memoir is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. Her first book was Adnan's story, The Search for Truth and Justice After Serial. And Rabia, we were just talking about your uh, migration of your family coming here uh, from Pakistan, but then you went back to Pakistan when you were two years old um, and you were a little bit chubby, 50 pounds. How did your, your family greet this sort of chubby toddler at the airport and, and, and throughout that trip? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of my uncles were probably just delighted because it, I just looked like a cute little butterball. But um, my grandfather was immediately concerned 
uh, because he tried to pick me up and put me back down and realized this is not, <laughs> this is not okay. Um, so, like she should not have gained this much weight so quickly at this small age. But, and very quickly, um, my grandfather who, who was kind of trained in um, like herbal medicines and things like that, he was like, no, this is, you have to, this is not good. This is not good for her future because I can see that this is going to be a problem for her for potentially her entire life. He was really the only one who was like really, just kind of shocked at it. I think a lot of my other relatives just thought, oh, cute, chubby baby. And, you know, she'll grow out of it. But he he seemed to know that I wasn't going to. What about your parents? Were they concerned? I think it wasn't until others, uh, <laughs> the rest of their family was like, oh, wait. Um, but the thing is, my parents themselves had put on a, a considerable amount of weight um, and hadn't maybe really realized it. So everybody, you know, all the relatives were like, oh, wow, you've all put on weight. My um, father's older brother actually said to my dad, you know, what are, what have you done to yourself? Like you, you go to the most prosperous, educated country in the world and you've, you're not taking care of yourself at all. You've completely let yourself go. You're an athlete. And uh, that, that, I think that made them reflect like, uh oh, what's happening? But that didn't mean they knew what to do about it. In fact, they were stuffing you with, you know, fatty breads and beautiful dishes and sugar at, you know, basically every stop in the road as you were traveling along and things. I mean, it seemed as if the food was just surrounding you. And that's the way to say I love you in India. Well, Pakistan. 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 Well, look, food is the way to say I love you in many cultures, I think. But certainly I was my parents' firstborn and it was was their love language, but they're also foodies. Uh, They love food too. And I think... I don't think anybody really realized that we were very quickly getting addicted to like the sugars and fats and all those things that are in like processed foods. But I think all of us became addicted to it very quickly. We want to bring in some callers here. So, you know, if you callers are listening and you have some family who influenced, you know, what you eat and how you eat for for better or worse, give us a call. Or maybe you've struggled with your weight or your body image. Maybe you want to share your story. Or if you'd like to ask Rabia about the Adnan Saeed case, you can do that too. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Ravia, I was kind of struck uh, throughout the book, you mentioned several times how much you weighed at different ages, which to me kind of reveals your relationship that you were paying attention. When did you start tracking your weight and, and your relationship to the scale? You know, I, the, the, the interesting thing is like, I didn't really realize that I remembered all these numbers until I started writing this book. I mean, it, the, but I, it was kind of a subconscious thing, I think, <clears throat> that I like saved these data points <laughs> in my memory. They were that important and seared into my memory. But um, yeah, it, I just, I didn't realize the significance of it. And frankly, I've spent most, most of my life hiding that number. I like even, I've had three children and every time I would go into labor and go to the hospital, um, whether it was my uh, first husband, first marriage or, or now my, my current marriage. I would just always be like, oh my gosh, I don't want my husband to see the chart in the room that has my weight on it while I'm in labor. Like, that's the thing I'm worried about. So it was something I've always hidden. Um, but, you you know, when you're, when weight is an issue for you, for whatever reason, because others have made it an issue or because you've internalized it, um, you live and die by that number in so many ways. I mean, you feel like a failure or a success because of that number. And it it's really very debilitating. 
You also say, I mean, it was circumstance. We've talked about the fact that, you know, your family transitioned to kind of wholesome diet to a processed food diet. But it also, I think there was an emotional component to eating. So it wasn't just what was in front of you. You say you were hungry all the time. What were you trying to fill yourself up with or what was going on internally? Yeah, I mean, there were points in my life that I felt like I could could never... Let me say it like this. There were points in my life I felt like um, a hunger that I, I had to continue to eat, but I also never felt full, which was a very odd thing because I was surrounded by people who, friends and siblings who would eat their portion and say, I'm full. And I didn't know what that meant uh, <clears throat> until years later when I got the gastric sleeves uh, surgery. And the one thing I'm really grateful for because of that surgery is that I now know what it feels like to feel full. I... I was clearly eating to fill um, a hole that was not my stomach. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's obvious. And the, the what it wasn't, again, until I wrote the book that I realized that there were times in my life when I was at my lowest, meaning I was the most depressed. I felt most out of control. I weighed the heaviest. I was physically um, in the worst shape ever and not feeling well. And I used to think it was because I couldn't control my weight and my body that my life was miserable. When in fact, as I wrote the book, I realized I was in an abusive marriage. I was living with a family that was um, terrible to me, my ex-in-laws. Like there were, it was my circumstances that were miserable. And that was what, what was feeding into um, like how I was eating and and how I was treating myself. So I always had it backwards. I always had it backwards. It was always what was going on around me that impacted how I was treating myself. And what was the relationship that your parents were having? Because you said they also gained a lot of weight, you know, suddenly they're buying, you know, very American processed foods, but were they also eating to kind of fill maybe a cultural loneliness? No, I mean, I don't think they felt any cultural loneliness. I think they love the foods. They love fried chicken and all the things, you know, all the things. It was delicious and it's addictive, but, you know, and this is a way to discover America. So they're like kids in a, uh, in a candy store. Um, And so, but, you know, it wasn't until I think maybe about 10 or 15 years in the country that my dad started realizing that, oh my gosh, my cholesterol, my, you know, like his, his health factors were, were like really being impacted. And, um, he got very good about actually controlling his diet, eating much better, um, just smaller portions, filling up on like eating salads and things like that. For my mom to this day, um, my mother does what she did when we were growing up, which is eat eat in secrecy. She still, in her 70s, will not sit down with us to eat a meal. But as everybody sleeps, she will eat at night and she eats not well. Uh, but I can't convince her to eat better, you know, and uh, that's her journey. Um, and we used to think that she didn't eat with us, like wouldn't sit down at a table and eat a meal with us because she didn't want to be with her kids and her family it wasn't until much later, I mean, really in the last few years that I realized that, you know, when, when somebody's eating in isolation and in shame, there's there's a lot more behind it. It has nothing, in fact, to do with um, with eating with other people. But is that abnormal in Pakistan for a woman to eat separately from her family? Yeah, of course it's abnormal. Okay, okay. <laughs> I wonder. That, not... that struck me. I was like, that sounds strange, that is... but... That's not a cultural thing. No, that's that's absolutely not a cultural thing. Everybody eats with their families, eats with their kids. I mean, wow. So she would just sit. She would just sit with you all, but but not actually. She wouldn't food. even sit with us. She would make the food. She would leave it on the table, and then she would disappear. And uh, and my dad grew up in a family where everybody eats together, and that's family time. And so he would just 
we, he spent our whole lives growing up saying, can you just please sit down and eat with us? And she wouldn't do it. Um, and she would always say, I'm not hungry. And, and now when she visits me or they, my parents stayed with me for a little bit, um, same thing. We would be eating around the table. My mother won't join me saying, I'm not hungry. But when you wake up in the morning, the food's gone. What does she think of your book? My mother read, <laughs> we got the advanced copy. She's not a reader, first of all, but she read maybe the first five or 10 pages. And that's really when I talk about my parents and them meeting and, and their story before they had me. Um, she never read past those five or 10 pages, but ever since then, she's referred to the book as um, the book you wrote about me, <laughs> which, which in some ways it is. So I'll let her have it. Let's go to a caller. Uh, Nick in Riverside, you're on the air. Hello, this is Nick from Riverside, California. Welcome. Hi, Nick. Uh, I uh, I grew up in the 50s, um, born in 51. My parents grew up, were, were born and raised during the Depression, and um, things that they were deprived of, they would not say no to me about, especially um, high-calorie foods like whole milk. That's all you could get mm. back then. Um, and bananas. And my dad especially, the doctors would tell them, well, Nick's overweight, you know, cut back on the milk or, you know, my dad wouldn't do it. He never got enough milk growing up. Mm. He, was, he, was, he was a young athlete in high school. And, uh, and so he said, I just, I can't tell my child no to milk. If they want milk, they're getting it. And, uh, you know, of course, Everything was done with butter, and um, there was the the canister of, of bacon uh, fat uh, by the stove that was used <laughs> to cook everything in, and all of these things. And um, I broke away from the fatness in high school through a, a book by Jack LaLanne, um, and read it and was inspired. But still, at 65, I was now over 300 pounds mm. and in, in very bad health. Uh, I've come back from that. I've gotten rid of 120 pounds through um, uh, a wellness program. And that, you know, the big thing is portion control and getting some exercise. Not a lot of exercise. You know, 20 minutes a day makes a huge impact. And right. um, sorry, my wife is telling me I'm proselytizing now. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's great. Thank you, Nick, so much for, for sharing your story. And, and I'm glad that, that it sounds like you have some tools that are working well for you. And that's a good it's a good transition, Rabia, into talking about, you know, eventually uh, you did, I think that the one that struck me was when your dad pushed you towards uh, taking a Weight Watchers class, which I think was at, or Weight Watchers program, I should say, at 15. Was Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I was 15 or 16 years old. That, that didn't go great because... I very quickly, I, 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 what they would drop me off the meetings and I wouldn't go. Um, I didn't feel like I belonged there. I didn't think I needed it. I would pocket the money they gave me. Um, but also, you know, the first time I looked at all the materials they gave me, I said, you want me to calculate all this stuff every time I put something in my mouth? I can't live like that. Right. No. And, you know, the, the truth is nobody can for a sustained period of time. That's the problem with all these programs is that, it's not a way you can live for the rest of your life. And if it's not a way you can live for the rest of your life, eventually it's going to fail. And, um, you know, we're, we're just taught that, you know, okay, just use this program, do it for three, four months. You know, a lot of programs are sold as like a 60 day cure, a 30 day thing, 10 days, you lose 10 pounds. 
but what happens next? Right? right. So yeah, but it took going through every kind and iteration of, of diets, including keto, Atkins, South Beach, I mean, name it, you know, I didn't eat rice and bread for years. Um, before I realized this, I can't live my life like this. And it's gonna fail every time I stop. And it does for everybody. And and what did eventually work? Did did Nick have some good ideas? It sounded like you were nodding as he was, you know, offering some of his solutions. Yeah, I think what definitely well, what changed for me really was uh, about four or five years ago when I just when I enrolled into a, a, a program that was all about strength training. And for the first time in my life, I had a trainer telling me, not only are you not going to slog away on an elliptical looking at the calories burned. Um, like I, I didn't step on a treadmill or, or elliptical at all in the, that time, but also you're going to increase your calories. Like nobody ever told me eat, you got to eat more and lift weights. And it's about your muscle mass and muscle burns fat. And I, I just couldn't believe that I had never known this before. And I didn't know until five years ago um, because we're just inundated with all this misinformation. It's like, oh, it's just calories and calories out. No, it's not. It's, you know, it's carbs. No, it's not. Um, so for me, that was transformative. I don't know if that's going to be true for every single person, but I think that the science behind um, like building muscle mass, there's a lot to be said for it. And and it's not just about your weight and size. It's about your health, your mobility, your flexibility. Um, and for when you're hitting your 40s, those are the things that matter more than than your size. Speaking of size, a, a listener tweets, a skinny person who cannot lift their own body weight or cannot walk up five flights of stairs is much more unhealthy than a larger person who regularly walks and lifts and enjoys the outdoors and uh-huh. isn't sedentary. A hundred percent. It's not about that number. And that was another thing that I have I realized was a lie all these years, that that number on the scale is meaningless. The BMI is utter crap. <laughs> you know, according to the BMI, I'm like a size 10, 10, 12 right now, but according to the BMI, scale, I'm morbidly obese. Like that makes no sense. And Rebecca kind of doubles down on that. Rebecca tweets, I'm hearing a lot of fat phobia and moralizing about food in this conversation. There's all this subtext about how awful and traumatic it is to be fat and how virtuous it is to diet and lose weight. But I think we just kind of touched on that. Do you want to follow up anything, Rabia and Rebecca's tweet there? No, I mean, look, it's the fat phobia is not okay. but every person is entitled to 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 to, I mean, like nobody should delegitimize how somebody feels about themselves. If I'm not feeling good about myself for whatever reason it is, then that's a legit, I'm, it's legitimate for me to feel bad about it. But the thing is, this, you know, you kind of can't win. And I start off my book with that. The very first, you know, the, the, the opening page of the book says, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that's the truth. When, when a person is heavy, the world will judge them for being heavy and make them feel bad for it. When a person is trying to better their health, eat better, eat clean, you know, take care of their body, which we deserve to do that for ourselves. We do it for other people. We deserve to do that. You're you're made to feel bad about that as well. And I just won't. At the end of the day, all I the only thing that matters is whether I'm happy in my body. And I have I'm happy in my body right now, even though I'm not the lightest I've ever been, frankly. Beautiful. And, and it wasn't really just your weight that your family was guilting you about. I mean, they also wanted you to lighten your skin. Tell us about some of the masks or the, the efforts that your mom did to, to make sure that you weren't as dark as you were. Yeah, or are. there's a there's a ton of colorism um, and stigma around darker skin in Pakistan. It's really shameful because obviously it is a South Asian country. Most people are brown. But even to this day in the media, you're never going to see it. 
you, when you watch Box Honey Media, you're going to think everybody is at, as light skinned as, as a white person. So, you know, my dad is a deep, dark, you know, chocolate brown. And I'm going to, I'm like, you know, I, I have gotten his DNA, but my parent, my family, not my dad, but my, my aunts and others in my family when I was younger were like, oh, she sat out into the sun too long. And so, you know, turmeric masks and brightening creams and skin lighteners. I mean, fair and lovely is an actual product in South Asia that millions of people used. I used for years. Of course it doesn't work. It probably is for all I know, cancers for you or something. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, but you know, I, I also want to touch on one more thing that I didn't get to say in response to the lady who um, who tweeted about fat phobia. What I realized was when I finally came to be at peace with myself and happy where I am, and like I said, it's not the lightest, I don't love my body, but I don't hate it anymore, is that my sense of um, despair was never about like how heavy I was. It was about feeling like I was out of control. Like I had control over every aspect of my life. I was successful in my career in many ways, but my body had defeated me. She wouldn't cooperate. She was my enemy. We were not friends. And she was a source of humiliation for me because of how people viewed me. Um, and that's what really changed. It's like, I finally realized I didn't understand my, what my body needed and responded to and what was good for it. And now I do. And we'll talk more about how that evolution unfolded for you. We're talking about food and family and the relationship between them with Rabia Chaudhry, whose new memoir is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. Her first book was Adnan's Story, The Search for Truth and Justice After Serial. And we want to hear from you. So after the break, give us a call at 866-733-6786. How has your family influenced how you eat for better or worse? Or have you struggled with your weight or with body image issues? Share your story. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or again, call us 866-733-6786. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about food and family and the relationships between them with Rabia Chaudhry, whose new memoir is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. And we do want to hear from you. Maybe your family has influenced the way that you eat for better or worse. Maybe you've struggled with weight or some body image issues, if that's true. Give us a call. Share your story, 866-733-6786, or email your comments to forum at kqed.org, or tweet us uh, at kqed 
Forum, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. That's where you're going to find us. So give us a call. And Kristen writes, I like a lot of what is being said, but I do take issue with this idea that all weight loss programs are problematic. I used Weight Watchers to help me lose over 60 pounds that I gained with my second child, and I did not sustain the weight loss completely, but it did kickstart a healthier lifestyle. Lifestyle, excuse me. I'm also trying a different health-based weight loss program now, and I feel very energized around the support I'm getting in that program. So that sounds like a success story uh, for Kristen there. You know, before we went to the break, Rabia, we were talking about how your relationship with your body is, is still not perfect. You said, I don't, I don't love my body, but you're in much better relationship with it. What do you think has been sort of the secrets or, or the, the ways the influences along the way that have really changed your relationship? Well, I mean, look, I, does anybody really love their body? Like every part of it? I mean, almost everybody, I don't know a single person who in my personal sphere of friends and family who can say that almost everybody I know, I don't care what size they are, what they look like is wants to somehow better, you know, feel better, maybe be more active, lose 10 pounds. You know, everybody's got something. I don't know anybody who's like, I am so happy exactly how I am. Actually, that's not true. I know one person. <laughs> that's Nirvana. <laughs> She's reached the promise that and good for her. I don't think there's anything wrong with um, wanting to make improvements in your life and your lifestyle and your health and all these things. There's nothing wrong. We put on, you know, I put on makeup every time I go out because I want to look a certain way. I mean, that's unless we're moralizing about all of this, right? Like it's, it's, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look better and feel better. Um, where I am now is that I, because I feel like I'm in control, look, I haven't been in a gym in eight months, right? Like I'm kind of eating whatever I want, but I'm finally at a place where food is not a source of shame for me. I don't feel like, um, dep- like it always was that food, I could never enjoy food whether I was depriving myself of it or whether I was eating it with depravity and just trying to fill a hole that I couldn't fill, I couldn't enjoy it. I always hated myself. I hated the food. Um, and I had such a terrible relationship with food. I, and also society doesn't give people who are heavy permission to enjoy food. That's the truth. Like we're not, we shouldn't be foodies. We shouldn't be sitting at a restaurant and ordering what we want and eating what we want. Um, and it's absolutely, um, what do you think changed that? What do you think changed that though, that where you did start to enjoy food and have permission inside to enjoy it? I think it was honestly, it was when I doing the strength training did like really completely changed my kind of um, mentality around my body because I was convinced that my body didn't respond to anything, that it was like it that I had no control over it and that I could never change. I could never change my body. I could never be feel, um, fit and healthy. I could never be active um, the way I wanted to be. And then suddenly at 45, I'm flipping tires and jumping on boxes and doing things that I didn't think I could do 20 years earlier. And as I was doing those things, I was told eat more calories, eat more calories. So I'm like looking for things that are like high calorie foods, you know, things like dates and nuts. And I'm eating much more like calorie dense, but really nutrient rich foods. Um, and just, I think building muscle mass, um, it really prevents you from, even if you stop doing all that, um, you, you kind of are able to kind of hold on to your results much longer. So I think part of that changed, but I think just my mentality, I just got tired. I got tired of not eating, not being allowed to eat, enjoy food. I also 
in my 40s have re-embraced um, like my, our traditional foods. I cook at home mm. most days. And I really believe that home cooked food is really good for you. I think whole foods are good for you. If I know what's going into my food, I'm okay. Um, and I have just built an aversion to foods with a lot of process. I'm not saying I won't eat a chicken nugget once in a while. Of course I will. Um, if the craving hits, but I generally just, if I look at a package and there's stuff in there that I don't even know what it is, I just don't want to eat it anymore. Right. Stick to, stick to the whole, just stick to the stuff that your grandma would recognize. Uh, Eric in San Francisco, let's take a call. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Yeah. I also, um, I was just listening to you guys wanted to emphasize the importance of uh, knowing who you're doing it for too. I mean, um, Growing up with some obese relatives uh, in my life, you know, weight and health was always like a, you know, it was a fussy thing around our house, Um, you know, showed me a lot about what I didn't want to grow up like and deal with when I was older. And, you know, and then, you know, just getting older and the inevitability of weight gain, um, you know, once you start getting like on the right track, um, in many cases, like I would, you know, I'd get some good attention from colleagues or, you know, friends, other stuff like that. And, you know, it always pushed me to like, Hey, you know, I'm doing something good. I better keep at it. You know, I'm, I'm getting the, you know, getting the notice that I'm looking for. Um, That's great. It's really hard though to like keep on that track when you're doing it for other people though. You know, once you reach a certain point, like what's, what's more, um, I just, I think it's really important when people are trying to sort out their health to remember who they're doing for, you know, and if you're doing it for you, the effects will be a lot more positive and they'll be a lot more lasting and easier to maintain. And did that eventually unfold for you, Eric? Do you feel like it's coming from, from inside? It is. Um, it's a lot more profound. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a, a superficial thing anymore. You know, when you know that like you're doing this for you, you're doing this, you know, to be better. You're doing this to live longer and, you know, yeah, you know, you're rewarding yourself, but, you know, positively, not just with superficial fleeting things, you know, because you can gain a little, but you can always get that back if you don't watch it, Absolutely. if you don't do it for the right reasons. Glad you're doing it for the right reasons, at least most of the time. So good job, Eric. Uh, Deborah writes, I yo-yo dieted for decades, and during the pandemic, I switched to a whole food, plant-based diet and lost about 25 pounds. It's a miracle to me that my weight has stabilized. I eat what I want within those parameters, and I don't ever need to be hungry. As many of my favorite docs say, it's the food. It's always been the food. Uh, Let's go to a caller in uh, Jesse in Richmond. Hi, yes. Uh, My name is Jesse. I grew up on a three-generation farm with my grandparents and parents and, and uh, siblings in Minnesota. And we grew all, almost all our own food and would collect it from the garden for every meal. And um, we ate um, a very healthy whole food diet. And we would have, after a meal of protein and vegetables, we would have some dessert, maybe a piece of pie. But nobody was overweight. Everybody was healthy. And then we lost the farm to Big Ag, and we um, moved into little nuclear family pods and off the farm, um, living not urban but in town. And my mom was working two jobs, and night taking and typing after a long day of work, she was thrilled in the 60s when every new convenience food came out, uh, processed food, because it made our life so much easier. And I don't fault her for that. 
but I can see that we all started getting addicted and cravings and gaining weight, and um, it's been it's it, uh, it's become a real struggle. Uh, and what what's worked for me, the solution for me, has been as it has been for many people, um, Overeaters Anonymous, because I, for me, it addresses all three parts, the emotional part that I have to deal with so I don't, I can handle emotions and don't eat to, to comfort myself. Um, it fits with my mindfulness program. There's a, a lot of mindfulness involved with the spiritual program. And, and then the physical. I, I've learned about what foods I just can't eat because the trigger foods and so on. I mean, for me, everybody's different. Jesse, that's so good. Your, your line's a little tough for us to hear. So I think I think we got the three things that are super important. Uh, you know, the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual, which I really think does keep you eating eating better. Rabia, would you, would you agree that those are the kind of key components that come together to keep us healthy overall, not necessarily skinny? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what matters, As, especially, you know, I my parents are, you know, quite elderly right now, and they're, they are really struggling with my, my father's bedridden, frankly, but even before he became bedridden, mobility was really tough for them. And it's because their lifestyle was so set, became so sedentary in this country. And um, I think when you look at folks back home, they have a very different lifestyle, they walk a lot, it's just, you know, there's less just sitting around. And so for me, like, that's what I'm more concerned about. And I do think like, you know, there ha- there's, I, I do believe there's a spiritual component to eating. And, um, but that's only if you accept that that food is there, like to actually nourish you, you know what I mean? It's there to take care of you. But a lot of us have really terrible relationships with food because we don't feel like the food in front of us is there to nourish us and care for us. It's, it's because we're responding to a craving. It's because, and then we don't feel good about it. We just don't feel good about eating. And if you don't feel good about eating, something's wrong. Absolutely, something's wrong. Jay Ganesh, you have been waiting very patiently. Let's take your call. Jay Ganesh is in San Ramon. Yeah, hi, and uh, thank, thanks for this wonderful discussion. Uh, I've been, like, uh, uh, listening to this avidly. And this is a very uh, interesting topic, incidentally, because I always used to believe that I'm not put on weight uh, because I'm a vegetarian. I don't eat too much of, uh, you know, cheesy food. So I always used to, you know, uh, fool myself into thinking I'm not gaining weight. My wife basically uh, has been always telling me that you need to, you know, watch your carb intake. You need to watch your processed food intake. And today morning, incidentally, I took out my old wedding dress, trying to see if I can fit it in. And I, I, my pants wouldn't go up, and I was like feeling like a fool. Uh, and like she said, like I told you so. But then we were also discussing just before, you know, getting on to this, listening to this. And she told me that, okay, uh, how do I get rid of the bread addiction? That is the big problem because every day morning, uh, bread is the easiest breakfast I can make. So I just take the bread, slap peanut butter on it, and just eat it. And uh, while she's into you know healthier milkshakes and stuff, uh, you know low carb ones, uh, and and she basically you know has been talking about it. But again, uh, since I'm also eating rice for the lunch, so I've always been feeling guilty about eating rice uh, because though we I'm from India. Uh, there we used to use the public transport more, walk a lot. Yeah, unconscious walking was there more when I was in India. Here I, I just commute on a highway, on a car, and then sit in a chair and work. Uh, the drive to, you know, unconscious and just keep walking is not there that much. And when, when I do walk, 
for the sake of walking i don't feel you know like i i'm always feeling like okay i'm i'm missing out on some work or something like that hmm. that that whole culture change is very difficult to you know work around and uh, you know like the, i i'm all the points i've been hearing uh, from listeners as well as you uh, it's revealing and i'm i'm going to now sit and plan my thanksgiving <laughs> and christmas to say what change i can make now Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you Jay Ganesh. What a, yes, I, I hope all of us will be inspired this week maybe to take take some more walks. Uh, we're talking about food and family and the relationship between them with Ravi Chadri, whose new memoir is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. And I'm, you're, li- excuse me, <laughs> you're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim today. Let's go to Pat. Uh, Pat, you're in San Francisco, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah, I was looking for some guidance around how to have conversations with people in regards to taking care of yourself and doing what makes you feel healthy and have energy throughout the day. In regards to um, fat phobia, whenever I talk with my partner about wanting to go work out or I want to change, like, "Ah, I wish I, you know, could watch my salt intake a little bit. Um, just because throughout the day it gives me a lot more energy. And for instance, I'm a you know I'm a truck driver, so there's times of sedentary lifestyle, and there's times I'm out there throwing boxes. So I do need the energy for when those times come. I, I was really looking for if you had any advice on how to navigate navigate those conversations of wanting to do things that make me feel good only for me, and then getting called out for fat phobia. Fabia. Yeah, well, can I also respond really briefly to, uh, I think his name is Jagnish, the previous caller too. Yes. Um, What he said, uh, what I want to say is that there's nothing wrong with eating bread and peanut butter. There's nothing wrong with eating rice either. I mean, like this is part of the problem is that we've been programmed to think these things are not okay for us. And they are, there are different kinds of bread. There's highly processed bread and there's bread that's actually really wholesome for you. And it's okay. You just have to figure that kind of stuff out. But this kind of goes to both of these um, things. You know, I... When I real like I said earlier, when I realize that I'm going to be judged by other people no matter what I do and what I look like and what I'm trying to do, at the end of the day, it's not I don't care about pleasing anybody else. And I was asked the other day, "What's your ultimate self care?" The ultimate self care for me is doing something that does nothing for anybody else, meaning like going to the gym or getting a massage. If it's just for me, that's self-care and you're entitled to that. If that's what makes you feel good, nobody should be allowed to say you're not, you shouldn't do that because what they're actually doing is projecting. What they're actually doing is they're saying, you doing this is making me feel, feel bad about myself. Even if you're making no judgment about anybody else in your life, and you shouldn't be, by the way, you should not be making judgments about anybody else. It should be everybody's choice, how they want to live their lifestyle. And frankly, after 40 odd years of other people in my family telling me um, to try to lose weight, try this, try that. Nobody, nothing anybody ever said actually changed my behavior in in, in a positive way ever. I had to come to that myself. So I think it's okay. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. When I first started like taking an hour every night to go work out, I was like, oh my God, as a working mom, like, what about my kids? And I was like, my kids will be okay for an hour and my kids are okay. Hmm. Oh, that's such good permission for moms out there, including including myself. Uh, Savala, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Savala, Savala, writes, the only reason fat people feel bad about themselves is because of fat phobia. That's it. There's no individual happiness or unhappiness without a system that tells you how to value your body. 
It's true that people are entitled to feel how they feel, and we shouldn't minimize the toll of someone's unhappiness with their looks. But those feelings don't occur in a vacuum. Fatness does not mean being unhealthy. And Grace also writes kind of the influence from other people. She writes, My mom used to come back from trips in the Philippines with gifts of skin-lightening soaps. She has said many times that I looked ugly because of my freckles, and I don't attempt to cover them up with makeup. Horrible how people you love put you down. One theme I hear so frequently, Robbie, in this conversation is that it has to come really from you and from the inside and and almost to put a shield around you in in terms of what other people are thinking or pushing or pointing or projecting, as you said. Yeah, look, I want to be clear. This is not a weight loss book. It is not a prescriptive book. This is just my weight journey. This is a story about my weight journey and how closely connected it is to my food and the stories around family and how much it's actually a, a happy book um, and how much joy. I'm just happy in my life now that I can actually derive joy from food. And I was deprived of that for so many years. I deprived of myself. But I don't think it's fair to say that um, feeling bad about your weight or your looks is 100% external. Of course, there's a lot of external factors. But there are times when my knees hurt, when my back hurts, when I cannot do physical activities, when my health is suffering because of where I am and how I'm eating. Um, and that's just reality and science. And so when I, you know, I remember when my, about 10, 15 years ago, my knees were in such a bad shape. I couldn't walk down the stairs. I lost 30 pounds and then the pain went away. That's a quality of life issue. And that's a quality, yeah, absolutely. A quality of life that I think one thing I want to push before we run out of time is that the beautiful gift that you do give in this book is these recipes, these very rich recipes that I hope to try this week when I have some time off. So definitely I feel like we might have focused on some of the negative, but there's this beautiful aspect of your love for food that you share in your book. We've been talking about food and family and the relationship between them with Rabia Chaudhry, whose new memoir is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. Rabia, thank you so much for this rich conversation. And I hope people pick up the book so that they can make the chai that it sounds amazing. (laughs) I look forward to trying it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. Happy Thanksgiving. And happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Have a wonderful week. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. 
Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.